0: Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Well, I've been looking forward to this Sunday for quite some time. Uh, We are beginning a new series, a 10-week series called Future Church. Uh, This was originally put together by John Mark Comer and Dave Lomas in Portland and San Francisco. And uh, we, in partnership with Park Hill Church and Neighbor Church in San Diego, with their permission and their content, along with our own and our own conversations, have kind of dreamed and prayed together to come up with something we believe is timely and prophetic for this moment as the church and specifically for our church, for Light Church, in conjunction with what God is doing through these other communities. And I think that what we're going to be covering these next few weeks is critical and so significant. So I would just encourage you just to lean in these next few weeks and just to really be prayerful. As a church, we kind of walk through these different themes and topics of what What is it like for Jesus to speak to the church in 2021 in San Diego? And wanted to, before I dive into the message, a couple of resources that might be helpful for you along the way. Just three books that have helped shape what we're going to be talking about on top of, obviously, the scriptures. Uh, Number one, Tim Keller uh, came out with a book recently called how to Reach the West. And it's kind of, he wrote this as kind of, uh, before he goes to be with Jesus, kind of this book he wanted to give to the church. Um, and it's brilliant. The cool thing is, it's totally free. Uh, it's, you can listen to the entire thing um, on its podcast, just look it up, or you can go download it from his website. Uh, the second book is called Beautiful Resistance by John Tyson, he's been a huge influence on me. Um, and his book just talks. His book encompasses a lot of what we're talking about. And lastly, a book that came out a couple years ago, *The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry* by John Mark Comer, talks about some of the response to what the world is going through right now and how to live counterculturally in the way of Jesus. So, quick commercial. Check those three resources out. Um, might be things to check out for you, your family, friends, roommates, open table, um, because they can really kind of help aid in this journey. So, I want to begin by sharing a story. Uh, Jen and I love plants. We have plants in our house, we have plants outside our house. Um, the, one of the first jobs I ever did was doing landscaping. Uh, but just because we love it doesn't mean we're very good at it. And in the very front of our house, we have these Boyganvia plants that we planted a year and a half ago or something with these hopes that they would just grow all over our house in these vines. And um, so I we put new soil in, planted them, watered them. And a year later, they're just like pretty much dead. Uh, two of the three have no more green on them. One of them has a little bit of green on them. And so we're like, okay, let's give it one more shot. So we go and get new soil, take them out, put new soil in, and I bought some like miracle Grow or something like that, and as I'm doing this, my neighbor from across the street, seems Jack, and he's like the ultimate neighbor. He has every tool, he's always around, willing to help. And he comes up, he's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm like, hey, I'm just trying to get these plants back to life. Um, and he's like, hey, so funny, I actually have Boygan um Fertilizer specifically for it. I was like, no way. He's like, yeah, I got some extra. I'm like, again, just jack the neighbor, just totally on time. So we get his fertilizer, which was not Miracle Grow. We put it in there. Uh, a couple months later, they have grown bigger, more lush, more green than they ever were, even before we bought them at the plant store. And it was this kind of this massive revelation, this thing that looked like it was on its way out. Dying, maybe beyond repair and beyond hope, actually within itself possessed so much potential for life, but it had to have the right ingredients, the right fertilizer, some new soil. And this is that moment for us, we believe, as the church, is, and I'm not, when I say the church, This is in reference to uh, the larger state of the church, specifically in the West. I'm not talking specifically about Light Church um, or any particular church, but largely what we're all a part of. We're all a part of this family. And statistically speaking, there has been a lot coming out that has kind kind of pinned it as it's in trouble. It's in decline. And... With that, it's not just numbers, it's just not analytics. There are emotions and stories of people who've experienced uh, the pain of organizations and organisms run by broken people. And so we're left in this moment where we have to know what to do. And so today we're going to be kind of having this 30,000 foot overview of what we're going to be doing in this series and why we're doing this series at all. So if you're a note taker, you're going to have six points on your screen. Number one, we're going to talk about an assessment. And then we're going to move through kind of this growth process, this renewal process, the seed. We're going to be talking about the beginning of the church. Then we're gonna talk about the roots, how that church began to spread in a really hostile environment. And then how those roots produced growth even after the fall of Rome and how it continued to create beauty in the face of resistance. And then um, hundreds and a couple millennia, hundreds of years later, a couple millennia later, um, it seems that we are about to experience a new sprout, something new that God is doing. Um, and that begins with an assessment of the soil. So we're just going to walk through with those things. And so first is why are we talking about this series? Uh, Tim Keller posed this question in his book. He says, what happens when going to church becomes unthinkable? There's always been a certain amount of persecution that every follower of Jesus has faced Uh, but it is becoming um, exponentially greater. And I don't know if you've sensed this in the culture, but it seems that things that the Bible claims are all of a sudden hostile to what the culture says is right and wrong. Not to mention that what the culture is saying is right and wrong is constantly changing and evolving. And if you're not changing and evolving with it, you are likely to be pushed aside, ostracized, or just cut out altogether. Keller says this, We are entering in a new era in which in many places in the West, there is not only no social benefit to being a Christian, but an actual social cost to espousing faith culture is becoming more actively hostile toward christian beliefs and practices semi-biblical generically religious beliefs in god truth sin and the afterlife kind of these religious dots are disappearing in more and more people as culture produces people for whom christianity is not only offensive but incomprehensible and Maybe, maybe just maybe this isn't just a modern problem uh, produced by uh, whether it's the technological revolution or the Enlightenment or uh, postmodernism or relativism, whatever you think, secularism that you might peg. In. Maybe this is actually a human problem, an ancient problem. Think about Joshua twenty-one twenty-five says, in those days, thousands of years ago, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, Could there not be a more timely assessment to where we are? Um, Mark Sayers, who's a sociologist and pastor in Australia, has recently said, I've said it here before, he says, we want the kingdom without a king. And so there is this heavy honor-shame type push within the culture to believe this, say this, don't say this, all the while there is an absolute rejection of any sort of king whatsoever. And it all sounds so provocative and maybe even enticing to many of the people who maybe not be tuning into this video. What do we do with that? What do you do with those people who Going to church or aligning yourself with a biblical worldview just seems unthinkable. One of the things that Keller says in his book, I think, is so wise, says today a Christian high theory might might profitably begin a question by questioning our culture's claims to neutrality, objectivity, and universality. It would engage the late modern secular view of the world publicly. It should show how in the, in an effort to free the individual self, which is, by the way, kind of the greatest moral good of our culture. Culture has led us to our current condition in which, and so I love this his kind of diagnosis of where we are as a culture. Uh, All of this hyper-individuality, do whatever makes you happy, believe whatever you wanna believe, but don't enforce it on others, regardless of the fact that that isn't self putting your view on someone else. This is where it has left us. All values are relative. All relationships are transactional. All identities are fragile. And all supposed sources of fulfillment are disappointing. And so as much as this is a current event, a current problem, this is also not shocking to God. And I think it's really important for us to understand where we are as the church in the midst of the culture we inhabit, does not frighten God, he's not put off by it. And as his bride, as his body, neither should we. But the question isn't coming up with something new. Rather, the solution might be going back to what always was. So let's begin with the seed. Let's begin the very first time we are introduced to the idea church you ever think about that the very first time the word church is ever mentioned by Jesus it's in Matthew 16 it says when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi he asked his disciples who do people say the son of man is they replied some say John the Baptist others say Elijah and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets but what about you he asked who do you say that I am I mean, if that's not just one of the most gripping, and significant questions we could ever be faced with. Simon Peter answers You are the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. Ding, ding, ding. Right answer, right? Now, uh, right now on your screen, you're going to see three different pictures show up um, of Caesarea Philippi. This is an actual archaeological site you can go and visit today. I went and got to see it two years ago. Um, and amongst these two pictures, you're going to see kind of this ancient uh, stream embedded against this massive rock wall that they built these temples into. Um, and it also should be an image of, of a reconstruction of what we thought these temples could have made. But a couple of things to point out. Number one, Caesarea, Caesar, um, took over this old Greek town and made it kind of the Roman presence in that area. So Jesus takes his disciples pretty far out of Galilee, a lot more north, and takes them to this town that is essentially their Rome. It's where Caesar is worshipped. And while he's there, he goes up and he makes reference that the gates of hell, the gates of Hades will not prevail. Well, the gates of Hades was an actual place right there along the wall. If you see that cave cut out in the wall, there's a spring that come out that they believed was the actual physical gate to the underworld. And it was at that place that they would worship this god named Pan who was in the shape of a goat and they believed he was the lord of the underworld and they would do horrific things like sacrifice children. And it was, it was thought to be the pinnacle, the, the, the epicenter of pagan religion as well as the epicenter of Roman ideology and power in that day. And Jesus brings his disciples there. And starts for the very first time in history to talk about his church. And he says, the church that's going to exist, that the gates of Hades, this, this, this entrance to the underworld, all things evil, all things horrific, the very center point of darkness will not prevail, will not be able to stand the gates of it against this church. Now, the other thing you need to know about gates is gates were not just where you come in and out of. Gates were the place that um, public meetings were had. There's kind of like the city hall, if you will. It's where judgments were pronounced. And it's where those in ultimate authority sat. So just think about what Jesus did right here. He goes to Caesarea Philippi. Ahead of the Roman colony, to the gates of hell itself and says, you see this place, the gates of hell, the ultimate authority of hell, the ultimate um, judgment of hell will not prevail against my church. I mean, what a declaration. My first question, if I'm back there is, what's a church? Uh, the, the Greek word that's used here is ecclesia. And it's used a few times in the new testament and it's a word borrowed from other um, and the ecclesia was kind of like the city council it was the political government that existed within each town that would meet to decide things and so the church the ecclesia was the counter community that would govern and set up rule and reign not of a political system but of god's kingdom and so he says, my ecclesia, my church. And this is the birthplace of where we see Jesus talking about the church, even though it doesn't, isn't birthed until the day of Pentecost. This is where we're introduced to it. And so again, I think that there can sometimes be this, this panic of just like, oh man, what, what's happening to our religious freedoms and things like that? And again, man, Lord have mercy. The, the reality of our brothers and sisters, what they're going through around the world in Afghanistan, puts in so much perspective but I think for those of us in the West and those of us who are trying to figure out if we want to drive 20 minutes to church or watch online, or if, you know, I mean, the things that we deal with are so small, and but yeah, we feel the cultural pressure starting to press in around us. Remember the seed. The next thing after Jesus promises that, after his death and resurrection and the spirit coming, the church spreads. And it doesn't just spread, it spreads like, wildfire it is it quite literally takes over the ancient world now you might just think like man what caused that what sort of brilliant marketing scheme what amazingly and in the, the reality we can't point to anything that have cause it specifically because it was in one of the harshest most persecuted environments in the history of the world there's no reason some sort of small sect of Judaism should have gained that much momentum, that much more power, that much roots, in that kind of environment. Why? What caused the early church to be flourish so strongly, to dig such deep roots in such hostile environment? Larry Hurtado. Um, who's a professor at Baylor recently put out a book called Destroyer of the Gods and he's a historian and he goes back and he traces the five components that made the early church not only stand out but thrive in that kind of environment Uh, number one is that the early church was multiracial and multi-ethnic now in a world where you were born into your religion. Now again, we we value independence and freedom of choice. That wasn't so in the ancient culture. Your God was linked to wherever you were born. And here, for the very first time, the Christian world, we valued decision and choice. You choose. And so for the very first time, we see a community of people that is multiracial and multi-ethnic. And that was massively appealing to a world that was starting to become multiracial, racial multi-ethnic, but religion was still incredibly divided. And all of a sudden, there was this faith system that was welcoming and celebrating the diversity that existed. Second thing is that they were highly committed to caring for the poor and marginalized. When most, most new philosophies or faith systems would gravitate towards those of influence and power, the early church moved magnetically to the margins and to the lepers and the sick and the prostitutes and the poor. it's where they spent their money they were wildly generous um, many accounts of people selling their entire estates just to feed the poor and they continued to do that and they got they became known for this multiracial multi-ethnic community, a community that was radically concerned with the poor. Number three. Um, they had non-retaliatory, uh, they were a non-retaliatory community marked by a commitment to forgiveness. And so in the early church, many thousand, countless people died for their faith. And they were known both in the gladiator arena and all throughout the world as a people who would not retaliate violently a matter of fact, they were known for praying prayers. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Why? Well, it's what Jesus did. And so they kept trying to kill them faster and faster. And they kept not retaliating violently and just praying blessing upon their persecutor. And you can imagine the head of the world starting to look at this early new movement. Number four, they strongly and practically and practically were against abortion and infanticide uh not just as like a political ideal but as a practical way of living there are historical accounts of the church going to places where children were thrown out as sacrifices to the gods or to be sold as slaves and to be welcoming them into their homes and raising them. These were the children that weren't the gender that they wanted. These were the children that were born with disabilities. And in this moment, there was this radical um, thing of recognizing because of the Imago Day, every human life mattered, regardless of physical ability, regardless of gender, regardless of what they could contribute to society. They mattered because they were made in the image of God. Uh, Number five, they had a revolutionary sexual ethic, the sexual ethic of Jesus. And In an ancient world where the sexual ethic favored those of power and favored men, where women uh, could have lost their lives if they had any sort of sexual relations outside of their um, relationship with their husbands, men could do essentially whatever they wanted. And all of a sudden, the Christian movement comes around that comes and again places a different value system that sex is not some sort of transaction between uh, two adults. Um, Sex is not something that is ultimately meant to even serve you, but rather it is a picture of covenant between God and his people. And so these five components marked the early church, according to the historian Larry Hurtado, um, I think it's funny just to point out two of these things tend to be values of those who consider themselves on the political right. Uh, things like uh, care for the unborn and speaking up against, speaking up for marriage um, and, and a conservative sexual ethic. Two of these things tend to be uh, lent towards those on the political left. Uh, caring for uh, diversity and multiracial, racial multi-ethnic priority, caring for the poor and marginalized. And then there's uh, the non-retaliatory thing, which really no side really claims a ton. Uh, but what we see here is all of these things call us to, and, and again, it's just such a reminder, we live in a world that wants a kingdom without a king. And so as a follower of Jesus, and we look back towards the roots of the early church, there's something that we need to recapture. And our first question we should ask is not, does this align with my political ideal? Does this align with the gospel? Does this align with the person and the way of Jesus? After we see the seed of Jesus talking about his church and we're introduced to the roots of the spread of the early church, Uh, we see the growth continuing even after the fall of Rome in 420 AD. A matter of fact, Augustine wrote uh, his book, The City of God, after the fall of Rome. Um, Interestingly enough, when Rome fell, after it had been on the rise for close to 1,500 years, uh, there was massive fear. What does this mean? Not only for Rome, but for the entire world. It had exercised global domination for so long, no one could even imagine what it would look like for someone else to have control. And as Rome fell, the, the, the pagan world blamed Christianity. At the same time, St. Augustine wrote his book, City of God, as a critique, actually saying, no, 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 it was the worldview of the day that brought about the destruction of Rome. And it was in that moment that the church began to leave into these monastic societies, largely in fear for their life. And they began to live um, and live out the way of Jesus together, not so much to run away, but rather to fortify so they can continue to bring influence. This is where we get things like the Desert Fathers and things like that. And it it was amazing what happened when the church didn't crumble with Rome. It grew in these monastic communities. Um, And that's continued itself. A matter of fact, just a hundred years ago, um, less than a hundred years ago, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in the face of Nazi Germany, began to construct a small group of a couple hundred pastors he called Thinkenwald. And it was with this community that he devoted himself, kind of like a monastic order, to live life together, to break bread together, to study the scriptures together. And when, when asked about this, there's this famous story where he brings one of his theological friends up to this hill. And on one side of the hill is where he is training these young pastors and on the other side of the hill, across the river, there is a young Nazi training camp. And he says, why are you doing this? And Bonhoeffer looked at him and he said, this must be stronger than that. He also wrote this, the renewal of the church will come from a new type of monasticism, which only has in common with the old and uncompromising allegiance to the Sermon on the Mount. It is a high time men and women banded together to do this." And that's exactly what happened in 420 AD and beyond. It's what happened even in Germany in the face of um, the Nazi regime. And I like to think it's exactly what the Spirit is leading us into now. You see, there is always gonna be a temptation when we feel the cultural pressure come in around the church there's going to be a few things one is we can try and dominate right we can just try and and try and overpower and overrule and for most people we've given up on that the christian presence in politics and in the in in the marketplace has kind of dwindled down enough to think well, i don't know we can dominate anymore and so then there is the idea that we can go and we can retreat right we can go run away and the world is bad and we must protect ourselves from the world or there is this third option which is that we become the salt and the light that we come and not not assimilate to the world but rather become a counter community a beautiful creative minority in the midst of the world we live in to bring about renewal here in encinitas in san diego uh, if you're watching this, I know some people are watching this in Japan or England, that the kingdom of God can come in where we are with a group of people banded together on the words and the life of Jesus, which just leads us to uh, this moment of what, what do we do? What do we do in this moment as we are faced with a church that is increasingly facing pressure, and that's not going away, Do we fight? Do we run? Do we hide? Or do we press into the work of God in the spaces we live and breathe and move in a new way of doing this? And so here's what we'd like to propose. Um, These churches I mentioned, uh, we're all putting forth this idea uh, what is called a rule of life, um, or what we're going to be calling a rhythm of life. Uh, don't think about, when I mentioned the word rule, immediately you guys just tuned out. Uh, come back for a minute. I didn't say rules of life. Um, I said rule of life, and it comes from the Latin word regula. And this word regula is where we get our word for trellis, for a vine. And so if you think about this, uh, when I think of this idea, it is, it's about... A rhythm, a pattern, a support system of how to abide in the vine and bear much fruit, uh, Jesus talked about. And so again, because that word rule can carry with it some negative connotation for us, our church, we're going to call this a rhythm of life. So as a church, we are inviting you into a certain kind of Rhythm of life or a rule of life. Andy Crouch describes this as a set of practices to guard our habits and guide our lives. Stephen Makia says this, it is a holistic description of the spirit-empowered rhythms and relationships that create, redeem, sustain, and transform the life of God invites you to humbly fulfill in Christ Jesus. So here, let me just give a layout of what's to come. We've identified kind of the problem, but really that problem does not bring about fear because we know about the seed and the roots and the growth and what God is going to be doing uh, through this. And I think the best way I can describe this is an olive tree. Olive trees in Israel are called the resurrection tree, not just because they were near where the resurrection happened, but because olive trees can live thousands of years. And you know this. And what they do is after an olive tree lives its life, it dies. And then within it, it grows another olive tree. And it just gets wider and wider and wider and more hollow. But there's a new tree and it never has to move or go somewhere else. It just continues to grow out of that stump. And I believe that's such a great picture of what God's wanting to do right now. He's not trying to do something new. But rather, he's trying to bring life into something that he always intended. To bring the sense of renewal. And so here is going to be our our. chart forward. Next week, we're going to have another kind of introduction. We're going to talk about living with conviction in a world of compromise. And after that, we're going into eight weeks that are going to diagnose a cultural dilemma, current cultural dilemma, and the gospel response to it. So these are the eight. Number one, we're going to be talking about being a community of tight-knit loving relationships in a culture of individualism and isolation. Number 2, we're going to be talking about being a community of orthodoxy in a culture of ideological idolatry. Number 3, we're going to talk about being a community of holiness in a cultural culture of moral relativism. Week 4, we'll talk about being a community of contribution in a culture of careerism. Number 5, a community of peace in a culture of fear. Number six, a community of peacemakers and a culture of polarization. Number seven, a community of rest and a culture of exhaustion. And number eight, a community of justice and a culture of brokenness. And and here's what's great about this, I'm so excited. Us along with Park Hill Church and Neighbors Church is not only will we talk about these themes each week, we are going to have a rhythm that goes along with it a spiritual discipline, a practice of the way of Jesus that will reinforce the teaching. And so you might have noticed the very first ones happening in a couple weeks is talking about a tight-knit community of loving people. That will be the Sunday we launch our open tables. Um, open tables are not the end-all, be-all. But community is. We need one another. Again, whether that you are you are loving and living with your aging parents whether you are watching this and you're in your college dorm room with a couple friends or whether you are a part of an open table here light uh, we need each other and so with your community we're going to ask that you practice the different rhythm each week and the idea is that's what this doing we are creating almost this new monastic movement of living life not Hidden away, not an aggravation against, but within as salt and light in our culture. So, in conclusion, this is what I'd like for us to call to. And this gets called this section just kind of the soil, the soil of our heart. Before we can dive into this series, some things I just want to call us to. Three things um, that I think are paramount for us to move forward in this series called Future Church. Number one is we need a radical recommitment to Jesus as Lord. a, a An individual and a corporate powerful commitment to Jesus as our King. Uh, there's no other way apart from that. For those of us who've strayed from that, it's time to come back. For those who've never done that, um, my hope is that this is your moment, that you give your commitment to Jesus as Lord of your life. Number two is that we'd have a radical recommitment to Jesus as the way, not just as our Lord and Savior, but as the way that we can't expect the life of Jesus without the lifestyle of Jesus, that when we talk about these practices of of fasting and prayer and scripture reading and silence and solitude. This is the way of Jesus, what Jesus did. And we commit ourselves to the way. And lastly, is a sweeping renewal of the Holy Spirit in our church and Park Hill and neighbors in San Diego, in the West, that God will come and breathe new life in our church. So would you just pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. That you have called us to be your church right here and right now. May we not cower back in fear. And God, would we not in response to fear react in outrage and anger. But Lord, I pray that you would allow us to be your faithful presence of your loving gospel mercy, Lord Jesus towards the world and in the world you love so much lord i pray that light church and every church is a part of this network god would be a true beautiful human and flawed yes but faithful representation of who you long for us to be here and now And Holy Spirit, we ask for you to move, breathe in every person who's watching this, Lord Jesus, wherever they are, would you breathe upon them, move in their hearts, draw us to you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.